If you would, open up to the book of Acts chapter 9. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. Um, as I said last week, this week and last week just go hand in hand. And there's just too much information to cover in just one setting. And so we broke it up. Last week we saw how grace... Uh, has interacted with Saul and he's becoming Paul. Uh, the Lord encounters him on the road to Damascus. And so Saul comes to faith in Christ. And then we pick up really after he comes to faith, what happens as a result of him choosing to follow the Lord and the Lord really choosing him uh, nonetheless. And so this week we, we pick up uh, where we left off. Uh, what we're gonna do is we're gonna look at verses 15 and 16 just for a brief few moments. And then we're gonna transition into verses 19 through 31 uh, in Acts 9. Uh, but I wanna begin by asking the question this morning, and it's a question that all of us deal with. It's a question that all of us, at some point, we look into the life of other people. Uh, and that question really evolves around motivation in light of why people are motivated. Some uh, tend to handle suffering and persecution a little bit differently than other people. Why is it that we can look into the life of an individual and see them overcome all this adversity, all these trials and tribulations, and they just seem to keep to be persisting in the faith? They're growing and they're walking. They're not shaken. Uh, they're just moving forward and walking in faithfulness and walking in obedience. Years ago, there was a researcher who was asking that question, talking about hope specifically and how it was a motivator in particular for a group of mice. And so what he did was he filled up this tub of water and he began to drop mice into the tub of water and he wanted to see how long the mice would swim before they would drown. Pretty sadistic kind of a study if you ask me. And so he dropped the mice in the tub and after about 10 minutes, the mice began to sink to the bottom of the tub. They got tired and exhausted they fell into despair, and so they began to die and to perish. And so that was the baseline. For the second group of testing, what he did was he dropped a new batch of mice uh, into the tub, and after about two and a half minutes, he pulled the mice out of the tub, and he set them on the side, and he rested them for just a moment. And he rested them for about a minute or so, and then he put them back in the tub. And what the scientist or the researcher began to discover was that if he took the mice out of the water in the first 10 minutes of the experiment, the mice would then swim an additional 50 more minutes before they sunk to the bottom of the tub. So without any rest, the first 10 minutes, they would just sink to the bottom and drown. If they got a little bit of rest in the first 10 minutes, they would swim an additional 50 minutes, almost 60 minutes, they would go around until they were utterly just exhausted and couldn't do it anymore. And the question the researcher was asking was, how does motivation and really hope in a position of despair, how does it affect a group of mice? Now it's one thing to Think about that in the context or on the terms of, of what mice do. It's another thing to look at what it is that motivates believers to persist in the midst of difficult circumstances. And I think the two in the way the mice were motivated by hope of reprieve and rest is the same thing that motivates us often or should for those that are able to overcome in the midst of trials and in the midst of tribulation. And what we're going to see here is a man that is highly motivated, who has endured quite a bit in order to be about a, a mission, if you will, and living with meaning and purpose within his life that was rooted in the cause of Christ. And I want you to look with me beginning in verse 15 of Acts chapter 9. 
We read this last week, but we're going to go over it just briefly and, and look at a few different things. For the text says this, for Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Now, I want you to pay attention in these two verses to really just three words that we want to sort of hone in that I think are important and crucial for us to understand the motivation of Paul when we begin to watch him endure persecution and threats to his livelihood. The Lord says, and he's speaking to Paul, and he's saying, go, for you are my chosen instrument. In other words, I have called you out of a life of sin and darkness. Paul, doing nothing of his own merit, nothing good within him existed at this moment. He was a persecutor and he was a murderer. Uh, he would be called in common vernacular. Paul was a modern day terrorist in his day who lived to terrorize Christians. That's what he did. And on the road to Damascus, the Lord intervenes in Saul's life. Nothing good from him. God chooses him and he calls him his instrument. But I want you to notice what it says in verse 16. I've chosen him, called him to salvation. Why? And I'm going to show him in being chosen how much he's going to suffer for my namesake. How much he's going to have to endure for the sake of my name so that the gospel can go to the Gentiles and to the Jews, the children of Israel specifically. I don't have time this morning to unpack all of the intricacies in that word chosen. We could spend hours sort of uh, walking through this and what this means. And, and if we get into a place overwhelmingly where that word bothers us because we start to ask the question, did he choose me or did I choose him? That's not the point of the word. The reason why he emphasizes this fact of he is a chosen instrument is because he's reminding us right now today, just as he's reminding Paul, that in the same way that there is no goodness in him as to why God was motivated to choose him, it's the same thing on the other end and that him staying in the faith and walking with God is not up to him. It's surely dependent solely and sovereignly on the goodness of God and his sovereignty. So as God chooses and he calls to salvation, God in his sovereignty, he also sustains us and he allows us to persevere in the faith because of his goodness, not because of ours. Meaning that I don't have to, to earn my favor before the Lord because I already have it because he's given it to me in Jesus. But notice what he says. I'm going to show him in 16 that he's going to suffer. If he's going to follow me, he's going to suffer. But I also want you to see just for a moment, he says, chosen what? He says, he's my chosen instrument in doing this. This word here in verse 15 is the same Greek word that we find elsewhere in 2 Corinthians 4, 7. It's the same understanding that, that the instrument could, could also be translated as a vessel or, or a conduit. In 2 Corinthians 4, 7, he calls it the jars of clay, where he says this, Paul writes, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not us. So when the Lord identifies Paul in verse 15 of Acts 9, for he is a chosen instrument of mine, he's just simply saying this, Paul is my vessel, He's the conduit through which I'm going to distribute my authority and I'm going to give my power through Paul as he walks in faithfulness and in obedience. He's just the vessel. 
He's not the thing that is supposed to be admired, to be looked up to. In fact, Paul says, I will not boast in my strengths, but rather in my weaknesses, because when I am weak, God therefore shows himself as being really strong and capable. Now this sort of hit home uh, to me yesterday, and I didn't illustrate it this way in the first service, but I'm gonna illustrate it this way, uh, and I'm gonna leave to bear my vulnerabilities uh, here before my church. So um, many of you know that uh, that I just got into beekeeping like six months ago, all right? And so I have my bees are all in my house. They're on one side of the property. On my other side is my swimming pool. And so I was landscaping a couple months ago, and so I planted uh, these lilac bushes around my pool because they're supposed to go really big, and they're good privacy screens and all that. Well, these lilac bushes, I didn't know this at the time, but these things are like super magnets for bumblebees, hornets, wasps, and honeybees. And so anytime you go swimming right now at my house, because all the other flowers have sort of died, there's just like thousands of bees flying around my swimming pool. And so we had to do some work on the swimming pool the other yesterday. And, um, and so I'm out there, we walk out there immediately. Hey, like there's bees flying everywhere. Like what is happening? What is going on? And I'm like, I'll oh, just shoo them away. Well, literally at that moment, a bee flies from my face. I swat it away. I watch him out of the corner of my eyes, swing this way, this way, this way. And then it proceeds to, to sting me in my ankle. And so I'm like, man, so I, I, it burns. I'm like, okay, this is fine. I'm good. Well, the problem was that happened on a Friday. Sorry, I wake up on Saturday and my foot is the size of a grapefruit. I've heard what cankles are. I don't have cankles. I have a cankle in my right ankle at this point. I had people praying for me last night and I said, listen, I know this is silly, but I legitimately need you to pray for the swelling in my right foot to go down because I don't think I can put on my shoe in the morning. And I need the Lord to show himself strong in the middle of my weakness. Otherwise, I'm gonna have one shoe on. And then my mom who's watching this right now was just preaching your socks. Stand behind the podium. I'm like, I can't do that, right? I'm gonna put my shoe on. And so I'm, I was hobbling around, I was pathetic yesterday. Like Haley was like rubbing ointment on my foot. I'm laying in bed, like just this big baby because apparently um, I got into beekeeping, but I'm the only person in my house that has a severe bee allergy. Uh, I've been stung twice now and the same thing has happened both times. So I'm in the market for an EpiPen. If any of you have one, I'll buy it from you, okay? Just sort of under the, I'm just kidding, I'm going to my doctor to get one later. But in the same way that like literally last night, I was like, Lord, you, you have, I, have, I need to put my shoe on. I don't know if I can walk and stand. And that's where I was. And I wake up this morning and um, I put my shoe on, even though you can notice that this shoe's really wide and this shoe's a little bit more narrow because I had a little bit of trouble, but it, but it happened. And see, God shows up in our way oftentimes in a silly way from a bee sting, but he also shows up in great ways elsewhere that when we are weak, God will show himself to be strong. But if we keep reading in the text, we see in verse 19, he says this, but for some days, Paul was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and they said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? So I want you to notice, I don't want you to miss what has just taken place. Saul, who's become Paul, the chief persecutor of Christians, who was putting them to death, gets saved by God because of God's grace and his unmerited favor. God intervenes in Saul's life and he changes him. 
And it changes him to the point where, where Paul is changed from the inside out, but it ultimately affects his outward behavior to, to the degree to which the one thing that he's about is making sure that people know that Jesus is who he says he was and that he's Lord. And this is his single objective and a single mission. And no matter what people say or what they do, Saul or Paul is going to be about this mission. If you look in verse 22, the text keeps on and he goes, and he says, but Saul increased all the more in strength and he confounded or confused the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. And when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. So they hear this message and they become so incensed and angry at his conversion and at his message that they plotted to kill him. Listen to me. Paul was having difficulty in his relationships to the point where it wasn't just suffering or being ignored on Instagram or on Facebook. It wasn't just, I'm not getting likes anymore by this group or by that group. No, there were groups of people that were like, we're gonna pluck this guy out of the synagogue and we are going to put him to death. This was real in his life. Yet we see throughout Paul's life that he, he continually had this kind of conflict with people as he was about this specific mission regarding Jesus. And all the while, one of the things that we never see Paul do when we back out and look at his life, we never see Paul really plead that God would change his circumstances and change his relationships. You can examine all of the scripture in totality. You'll never find him say, God, remove me from this difficult situation. But rather, Paul's primary prayer in those times was, help me be about whatever your purposes are, whatever the meaning is that you want. I just pray that Christ be glorified in my life, no matter what it is that I'm going through. Now, this teaches us something profound through Paul's life, but also helps us understand really about what God is trying to do in the midst of our lives when we are going through difficult circumstances. And it is this, is the fact that God's objective is not to change our situations or our relationships, but rather to change us through the relationships and through the situations. God is less concerned with plucking you out of difficult circumstances, and he is more concerned with how your behavior, how your heart is being modified and changed because of the difficulties that are before you right now. This is the heart of what God is doing in the midst, I believe, of our city and of our state and of our country and in our church. He's asking us this question, not how do we change those people, but rather how do I need to change and adapt so that I can be more like Jesus? Human wisdom and human counsel makes a false promise in regards to change, that you can change your relationships without needing to change yourself. 16 years in pastoral ministry, every time I come to a counseling session with someone who's having conflict at home or, or at work or in the church, the first thing that we tend to do as we just listen is I listen to them, identify what the problem is, and 99% of the times, the problem always lies in the other person. Almost every single time. Now, legitimately, people need to work out their own stuff. Like Tate and Chesney, he, he's got problems. He needs to figure stuff out. Raise your hand, Tate, so we can see you over there, right? Tate's got issues, 
all right? Kirk Leach over here on the other side, equal opportunity offender this morning. He's got issues. He's got to work stuff out. But in the same way that Tate's got to figure stuff out for other people, Mark Fanning and Sherry in the back over there. Like, listen, we often will look at other people and go, they need to change so that my conflict and my relationship is minimized. And what a good pastoral counselor is going to do is they're going to help you navigate not to the other people, but rather focusing on what it is that you can change and what you can be control, in control of. And so the goal is, is that I need to shift within myself what it is that I need to do. Now, I want you to notice in verse 23 where he says the word many days. And so one of the first times I ever read through the book of Acts, um, I thought this was all just like sequential and like happening like right after the other, day after day after day. And he uses this term many days and it's really a figure of speech at this moment. And he's not talking about uh, one, two, or three days that have gone by, but he really has the, the longer view in mind. And the reason why we know that is we look at other scripture to inform our understanding of scripture. And so if you were to turn, you don't have to do that, I'll, I'll put it on the screen, but Galatians 1, verses 15 through 18. He says this, Paul's writing at this point to the church in Galatia, but when he who had sent me, set me apart before I was born, was pleased to reveal his son in me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult anyone. I didn't go to Jerusalem. After three years, after my conversion, I finally went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, Peter, and remained with him for 15 days. So here's the sequence in Acts 9. God saves Saul and then he sends him out into the desert to be by himself, to work stuff out. And I believe in that three years as he wanders around in the desert, God is teaching him things like humility. He's a young believer at this point. He's full of biblical knowledge. He was an Old Testament scholar. He knew the Bible front and back. But God sent him out into the desert for three years Seemingly with no purpose or no aim, no objective. Why? Because God was refining some things in Saul's life that he needed to fix and get right. Any of you this morning feel like you're, you're wandering around in the desert? Anybody say that, yeah, I've, I've been doing this and I feel like it's been going on for three years. I've got prayer requests that the Lord has not answered. I've got conflict at home. I've got conflict at work. I've been enduring it for, for three years or, or maybe a little bit more, or maybe it's only been a few months, but maybe that puts some perspective on the years that you're enduring the hardship and the calamity. Listen, I'm, I'm just as tired as the next person of, of COVID and Corona. I hate wearing masks, I hate social distancing, I'm ready for my kids to come back to church, I, I wanna be in small group again here, I want my kids to be in student ministry and children's ministry and preschool ministry, like I'm ready to get back, I want to be back, but the Lord providentially, he has this virus that's here, and, and here's the thing about viruses, they typically, they don't ever go away. We may have vaccines for it, but, but there won't be an eradication of it, that's not how viruses work, like it's here. And it's only really been happening, it's really been a short amount of time in the broader perspective of history that we've been having to endure. It certainly has not been three years. But get this, God sends him out into the desert to wander around for three years, but that's not even the beginning. Paul's pursuing meaning and purpose in his life, but all the while he's doing this, he's having to endure even greater hardships. In Galatians 2, if you keep reading in Galatians, he says this, then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas. 14 years taking Titus alongside with me. 
before he ultimately got to wherever it is that he wanted to be, to accomplish whatever it is that he wanted to accomplish, God sent him out in the desert for three years and then he sent him on this journey where he didn't actually get to fulfill everything that he wanted to fulfill. He was a failure in some ways. I mean, we can read the letters to the churches in the New Testament and see the deep issues and problems that existed in the churches that he started. Like the Corinthians, if you've read through that book, those people were messed up. Like all kinds of issues, we don't even come close to their problems. Could have easily felt like a failure, like he messed up or, or had doubt within his own eyes. For 14 years, he travels and he wanders, trying to correct, living in frustration, living in conflict. In 2 Corinthians 11, it gives us a picture in those 14 years of all the things that Paul had to endure. So, so I want you to get this perspective because this is important in understanding this. God saves him, sends him out into the desert, works on his pride, teaches him humility, wanders around, comes back, finally gets to Jerusalem, talks to Peter, and then he sends him off on his missionary journey, all the while he's experiencing a couple of things. One, he was beaten with lashes. He was stoned at least one time that we know. Three times he was shipwrecked, traveling to where God wanted him to be, and God shipwrecks him. And he lay in the ocean, lost at sea. He experienced danger from rivers. He was robbed. He was beaten by people. He was lost in the wilderness. He experienced toil and hardships. He knew what it meant to be thirsty. He knew what it meant to be hungry. He knew what it meant to be cold. He knew what it meant to, to be exposed to the elements. He understood difficulty. And for 14 years... He labored as such. But if Paul doesn't help you find some perspective, maybe Moses will. God gives Moses a command, or he tells Moses, you are gonna be the one to set my people free. He commissions him, and then he sends him back out to work his father-in-law's farm for 40 years before he does anything with him. He says, Moses, you're gonna do great things for me and for my namesake, but until I'm ready and the timing is right on my timetable, not yours, you're just gonna go and you're gonna work your father-in-law's fields for 40 years. How about David? David was anointed king and then they, the Lord anoints David as king, saying, you're going to be king. And then he sends him back to the pastures to tend the sheep for about 15 years just aimlessly wandering, doing menial things. Like this is the next king and here he is. He finds himself as a shepherd um, leading sheep, which, oh, by the way, are insultingly dumb animals. The king, why do you think we're referred to as sheep in the Bible, right? You ever, you ever thought about that for a second, right? What about Joseph? Hey, Joseph, listen, you're gonna be the guy that helps free Israel. Oh yeah, but by the way, before you do that, I'm gonna sell you into slavery in Pharaoh for 20 years. You're gonna wander in conflict. You're gonna experience abuse, physical, verbal. You're gonna know what it feels like to be neglected. This is God's pattern of refining his people is in the midst of suffering and difficult times. This is how God changes and this is how God molds people. And so listen, if you're gonna come at me with I've experienced three months of hardship or I've experienced a bad week today or I just had a bad day and I'm blowing up on everybody that I know, listen, don't come at me like that, okay? 
Like listen to the, to the hurt and, and what was here and the model that Paul lays forward with his people. A.W. Tozier, one of my favorite pastor uh, lay uh, theologians. He's wrote some incredible books. You should read all of his stuff. He has this quote that I absolutely love. He says this, listen to this. It is doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. Now, Tozier's not saying that God's some vindictive God that, that, that delights in hurting his people. But what Tozier is arguing is the premise or the point that God refines those that he loves. He disciplines and he corrects and he allows his people to experience hardships. And when we experience those things, listen, it's not a sign of God's punishment on our life, but it's a sign of, of really his gentleness and his correction and his love. And he's refining things in us as we walk with him and as we maintain that devotion towards him. But in verse 24, the text continues and he says, but their plot to murder him became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea, sent him off to Tarshish. So the church throughout all Judea, Galilee, Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. I wanna go back to that first question that we asked in the beginning about motivation through hardship. Here we have this man who has endured quite a bit, yet he seemed throughout all of his life to maintain this single-minded devotion. So where, where's the word of the Lord for us today in this? I think a helpful way to, to look at this is under the paradigm of what I would just say happiness versus meaning in my life. In other words, I can be guilty of being one of, of two, and, and sometimes these things overlap, but I can be guilty of being a person that is only pursuing happiness. And what I mean by happiness is just essentially this, that um, the, the one who is ultimately pursuing happiness as the end goal is the person who's just simply trying to get something out of life. Like the main goal is, in order for me to be happy, I need to do this. So it's, it looks like this, I need to go to, to this college, I need to have this degree, I need to have this job, I need to have this car, this type of house, this type of spouse, these types of kids, these types of clothes, these types of memberships and clubs, whatever that is, I'm constantly pursuing things to make me happy or to gratify myself. And that's one way of, of, of living your life. And, and, and listen to me, I'm not the guy that's gonna say the Lord is not concerned about your happiness. I will say the Lord does care about your happiness. Like he doesn't want us to be miserable human beings and he, and he wants us to find happiness in the right places. And, and sometimes God blesses us with all those things, the right school, the, the spouse, the kids, the how, all of those things can be good. But happiness isn't ultimate. And it wasn't ultimate for, for Paul either. You can be the person that pursues happiness or perhaps another way is you can be the person that pursues meaning or purpose. Meaning is, is just another way of saying it's, I'm glad to sacrifice for something more important than my own personal freedom. 
Meaning is wrapped up in, in purpose. So one thing I know, um, I'm a, I think I told you this, I was born in 1982, so I'm not technically a millennial. I'm not a Gen Xer. I'm what they call a zennial. Like it just means we're, the 82 kids are just confused. Like we're, we're trapped in between Gen X and being a millennial. Overwhelmingly, millennials in particular, as well as Gen Z, they love causes. They love purposes. They wanna get around something that, that's meaningful and so they will unite around a cause. And this can be good or bad because they can unite around the wrong cause or the right cause. But one of the dangers for Gen Z and millennials in particular is that we get wrapped up in, in causes and purposes that are not meaningful. Not every cause is meaningful. And so the question is, what is it that gives a cause meaning? Is it because it's affiliated with a political party or, or, or with a noble thing that, that could be good and we're gonna rally behind this? People become causes all the time in, in politics and in government, that the person is the cause and their worldview is the cause. We can get wrapped up and sucked into those things quickly. And it doesn't mean that, that all of those causes or those people are inherently wrong or, or evil, but, but here's the deal. When we look for meaningful things, pursuits, vocations, people, causes, we have to make sure that we measure the meaning alongside the word of God and the gospel of Jesus because ultimately where we get meaning is ultimately found in the scriptures themselves. And so what we're trying to do is determine meaning in a pursuit of meaning, self-sacrificing, being a part of something that's bigger than myself, a larger, grander story, but making sure that that story is connected back to the gospel and connected back to the thing that God has called us to do. And so I can be a person who ultimately just pursues happiness or I can be a person that ultimately pursues meaning. And when I say meaning, I mean meaning tied up to the scriptures and to the gospel. If you want happiness in your life, you have to pursue meaning. When you pursue meaning or purpose, the happiness is gonna follow and it's gonna be wrapped up ultimately in the thing that you're pursuing, which ultimately needs to be a reflection of Christ and of the gospel. If all you're doing is, is pursuing happiness, you're never gonna have meaning in your life and you're gonna find yourself somewhere down the road. And I know this because I was this guy at one point and I have counseled hundreds of them at this point where they hit their 30s and their 40s or they hit their 50s and just lose their mind and have a midlife crisis. And all of a sudden, all the things that they've got, everything that they have put in, into happiness just sort of erupts before them. And then we end up with bad marriages. We end up with great and gross moral failure. We end up with major issues because we've pursued happiness as the ultimate thing. Before COVID happened, there are many of you, maybe you still do, some of these gyms are, are now back open and you go to the gym and you're trying to work on yourself, your, whether, whatever your motivation is, whatever the meaning is, the purpose is. So you want to look a certain way. You're getting ready for a, for a certain event. Maybe it's just, I want to get in shape. And there's a whole industry that exists out there uh, with gym clothing. 
And, and if you know anything about gym clothing, um, you know that some gym clothing, uh, I would say it, this isn't exclusive to women because this exists for men too. So um, I, I can't really want to say this from this pulpit, this sacred space, but are we aware of what Spanx is? Like I know what Spanx is, right? No judgment if you're wearing Spanx right now. I don't judge, okay? No judgment, all right? But like people will put this stuff on oftentimes. Why do we, why do we wear, I've never worn Spanx by the way, but why do we ultimately wear Spanx or certain types of clothing? Because often we're trying to hide the imperfections of our bodies to some degree. And in some ways we're, we're almost lying to ourselves. There's a whole science behind uh, gyms where the lights are certain ways and the mirrors are certain ways. And they're meant to make you like project this image that you're seeing because of the lighting being a little bit different to make you feel like you look a little bit different than you actually are. But you don't actually look that way, right? Like you know really what you look like when you get home. And that's the funny thing about, about gym memberships. But here's the thing that, that ultimately gave Paul great meaning in his life, that Paul was not trying to pretend to be somebody that he wasn't. And in God's gym membership, if you will, God's light and his truth, it, it, it sheds and it exposes the dark recesses of our hearts and it puts them on display before him. So there is nothing that we can hide from God. No attitude or behavior or thought pattern that we can keep from him. And so how did Paul maintain a single-minded devotion for those 14 years, for those three years, continually in his life, well, I believe that Paul found his happiness rooted in his purpose. And that purpose was to bring glory to Christ in all that he did and to make his name known. And Paul understood that. To live in a way that displays the gospel for the world to see. I'm gonna invite Josh and our team back up. And as they do, I wanna tell you what happened in my house yesterday other than a bee sting uh, two days ago. Yesterday morning, I was drinking coffee on our couch early in the morning. Haley was in the kitchen reading the newspaper, drinking coffee. And, and I saw Haley, she was crying. Drinking her coffee, reading the newspaper, and she was crying. My Haley's right down front. And I'm like, oh man, I didn't do it. Okay, sorry. I don't know what's wrong. She said, uh, you got to read this story. It's going to make you cry. Like tears just coming down. I'm like, oh, okay, I'll read it in a minute. It can't be that good. Here. So I get the story. I read the story and I, I start crying too. Let me tell you what the story said. It was the story uh, of an elderly couple that lives in Durham, North Carolina. A guy by the name of Jack and a lady by the name of Jerry. Jack's 93 years old. Jerry's 91 years old. Jerry has Alzheimer's, she has for about a year, she's rapidly been deteriorating and she's been living in a, in a nursing home. And her husband has been going to see her, Jack, almost every day and then COVID hit. And like many of us who've had family in nursing homes, what did the, what's the first thing the nursing homes did to prevent the spread? They shut them down, no more guests, no more visitors. So Jack had been married to Jerry for 70 years, 70 years. And from the day that he was told that he could no longer visit his wife, 
He called up the, the owner, the manager of the complex. He said, listen, you got some spare rooms here. Can I rent a room out and just become a patient? You don't have to take care of me, but I, I wanna live here so that I can take care of my wife. And so as soon as COVID hit, he started renting a room and he's still there today. He's been there for a period of almost five months. Five months, he's the man that takes his wife, goes to her room, puts her in the wheelchair, hauls her down to the, to the cafeteria. He feeds her, takes about an hour and a half every day for this lady to eat. She doesn't know him anymore. She doesn't know him by name, but he knows that he's supposed to take care of her. And in the article, it said this, and this is what made me start to cry. I think it's what got Haley. He said, listen, he said, um, Jerry took care of me for 70 years. It is now my turn to take care of her. And I will do that every day that I can until they start to let people back in to visit. 70 years. She took care of me. Now it's my turn to take care of her. That's purpose. That's meaning. That's self-sacrificing, sacrificial meaning and purpose. That's the gospel on display. I didn't tell you this, but Jack is actually a retired Baptist minister just seeking to love his wife. And it just so happens that the Wall Street Journal got wind of it and they wrote a story on it and never once talked about Jesus, never once talked about the Lord, but I read that article and the word and Jesus were all over that news article. It was purpose. What purpose do you have in your life today? I think perhaps there's some of you that are here today that you're just living for happiness. Happiness isn't ultimately wrong. It's if, if you make it ultimate, it is. It's not wrong to want to be happy. I want to be happy. But not to the point where I neglect my purpose. To make much of Jesus and everything that I do. Pray with me. Father, we come before you. We ask for forgiveness of our sins and we thank you that you hear us and forgive us. We wanna be a people that live with purpose. I pray that if there are those that are here today that do not have meaning in their life, purpose in their life, we, we know that we cannot have that apart from your son, Jesus. That you breathe life into them today. I pray like you intervened in Saul's life on the road to Damascus, I pray you would intervene in their life today. You are the one to call, you are the one to save, you are the one to convict, you are the one to change. So God, would you do that this morning? We wanna know you deeply. We wanna follow you, we wanna walk in obedience. We don't wanna despair. Help us, God, we ask these things. Jesus and God's people said. Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand with me. We're going to sing a song of response as we conclude our service. I just want to tell you that I love you. God loves you. Whatever your circumstance is today, it's just temporary and it's going to be over before you know it. Hard times don't last forever. They may seem like it, but they don't last forever. God is good. He's on his throne. His purposes and his intentions are always right. They're always perfect. Let's trust him now as we sing in response.